Hello, lifers. This is Heather Drew, and this is the Life in the Whirlwind podcast. Today is episode 41, and this episode is called, What is the Good Life? Uh, Right now I'm teaching a counseling and theology class at my school, and last week I ended up playing an episode of The Simpsons, from season four called Homer the Heretic. If you haven't seen this, it's very interesting to say the least. But in this episode, there was this part where, um, I won't spoil it, but uh, there's a part where the house starts on fire and Homer is the only one inside. And this part struck me because it's so poignant Uh, And that's what this episode is about. So I thought I would share this interesting thing. So the fire starts and he's trying to remember the song that will tell him how to save his life in a fire. You know, it's like our version of, you know, stop, drop and roll or something. We learned that when we're super young. Well, apparently there's, you know, in The Simpsons, there's this song in the world, in their world. There's this song that sort of reminds you of what to do in a fire to save yourself. So he says, you see him notice there's a fire. He's trying to think of how to get out. And he's like, oh, the song, the song. And he says, you know, he sings the song. When a fire starts to burn, there's a lesson you must learn. Something, something, then you'll see. You'll avoid catastrophe. And of course, then he says the famous Homer line, uh, doe. <laughs> he realizes that he's forgotten the exact part of the song. He's something, something's right over the part that will actually tell him what to do to save his life. (laughs) So funny. Yes. Poignant. Yes. Somewhat tragic. Yes. Um, but what on earth is my point here? It's interesting because I think oftentimes this reminded me that oftentimes we like Homer in this song, skip over or sometimes forget this thing, these parts that are of life, that are the very parts of life that can save us, maybe, that can give us uh, a life that we are kind of looking for on a regular basis. And, and I'm not talking about, uh, privilege or comfort or, uh, you know, luxury or, you know, just whatever falls into that category. But what I am talking about is, uh, a different kind of, a different kind of good life. So my, I have to credit somebody for this topic. So I've been thinking so much about this stuff and, um, you know, every episode that I do, I've been chewing on this topic for quite a while. That's kind of how my mind works. I'm chewing on things regularly and I'm trying to sort them out in my mind and I write about them and keep them in bullet points and post-its and things. But Uh, I was talking to one of my students the other day named Ashley, and we started talking about this, and she asked this question. She asked the question, what is the good life? 
And we were kind of talking about how we skip over these simple lines in stories or these, you know, just these beautifully crafted and very missable, like you can totally just skip right over them. These lines in stories, uh, in, you know, novels, in people telling their stories, in the Bible, um, there's so many places where we do this and they're so small. They're so, like I said, they're so missable yet. There's, they sort of hold the key to the real substance of the story. I find that uh, a good writer, my favorite writers, at least both fiction and nonfiction, uh, are always able to, what's so captivating about them for me is that they're always able to say, you know, three words and capture so much meaning. And to unpack that meaning is the work of the listener or the reader or whatever. And it's really cool and exciting. So I wanted to give you a couple examples in case, you know, I want to like give you some tangible things to chew on when I'm talking about this. What am I talking about? I want to give you some examples from the Bible that are really interesting and we're probably pretty familiar with, but I want to talk about them. So the first example is a very, very popular classic, you know, famous verse. Uh, it's known as the, the shortest verse in the Bible. John eleven thirty five. So John 11, when I say John eleven thirty five, it's the Bible split up into books with, you know, their names. And then there's these chapters within the books. And then the chapters are broken down into verses, smaller sections. So this is John chapter 11, verse 35. And it just says, Jesus wept. A lot of Christians who, you know, grew up in Christian homes and churches and things kind of have the joke like, oh, what's your favorite verse? Oh, Jesus wept. John eleven thirty-five. No, this, this verse, let me talk to you about for a second why this is so these two words hold in them the key to the mystery of so many things. Um, this story, I'm not going to go into detail here a lot, but this story, Jesus's friend has just died. This person who is very close to him and important to him. And he's having these conversations with his his other friends who are this person's sisters and he's completely ravaged by death. Jesus is completely ravaged by the fact that I don't, this is my interpretation, obviously. Um, but he seems to be totally ravaged by, um, people's sort of the gaps that keep them from finding life the real life, the good life, like the life, we're going to be able to define the good life. Well, according to Heather Drew by the end of this episode, but it's interesting because, you know, here's Jesus ravaged by death and ravaged by how people are not living in wholeness that they're, he wants them to find so badly. And he just, it just says, Jesus wept. 
It gives so much permission in those two words. The second example that I want to bring to you today is um, in the book of Matthew, chapter 14, verse 3. Here's a simple sentence. When Jesus heard that his cousin, John the Baptist, had been beheaded, he left in a boat to a remote place to be alone. It doesn't say, that's a pretty interesting, like if I were to, you know, if I were, if you were to hear uh, that your friend's, you know, mother had died or cousin or brother had died and you would, and you know, you'd heard this from a friend and you say, what did, what did he do when he found out? Well, he got into a boat. It's just a little interesting, you know, like the way it's said, usually we would say more than this, right? But there's something extremely important in locked into this sentence that He's responding by getting in a boat and going far away. What's he doing? How's he feeling? Uh, what's he doing when he gets there? Where's the island? Who comes with him? Uh, it says he's alone. Did somebody follow him? You know, there's so many questions. But it's kind of like when you watch a parent, like when a child is watching a parent. Um, this is probably how the child would describe it. You know, um, my kids are always watching me process things and you know when I process something and I go to sit in a chair to process it and I sort of just sit there and I breathe and I close my eyes or whatever they would probably describe it similar to this like when she heard that news she sat in her chair and breathed <laughs> it's just simple observation but also within this simple observation is the substance of life it's a substance of a good life that we are invited into. Okay, I'm going to keep going. Mark 5.30. This is super interesting to me for reasons related to yoga. Uh, Mark chapter 5, verse 30. So Jesus is walking through this crowd, by the way. Um, he's walking through this crowd of people who want his attention. And everybody's like pressing up against him. You know, it's like a market. Have you ever been a mark in a market in a different country? Oh my gosh, you know what I'm talking about. So he's walking through this crowd and it says this. Jesus realized immediately that healing power had gone out from him. So he turned around in the crowd and said, who touched me? <laughs> oh, I love this verse so much. I love it so much. <laughs> It's so, Jesus realized immediately that healing power had gone out of him. So he turned around in the crowd and said, who touched me? Oh my gosh. I'm just going to let that sit. I'm not even going to say anything. <laughs> Last one. Oh, so good. Last one. This is kind of an interesting one. Um, okay, so. This is from earlier on in the Bible. This is way, way, way before Jesus. Uh, this is a prophet, Jeremiah. We probably have heard of him before. But uh, this is from chapter 29. <clears throat> and what's interesting about this is that a lot of, you know, again, I kind of joked around. 
a lot of Christians will say like, what's your favorite verse? This is how we grew up. Like if you grew up in a Christian home, you know what I'm talking about. Uh, Protestants are like very into asking each other what their favorite verses are for some reason. Uh, and so we do sometimes. And um, this is a verse, this is a chapter that people typically call from when they talk about their favorite verse. But I'm not going to read that particular verse yet. I'm going to read that in a minute. But here's the part that's leading up to pe- what people call their favorite verse. Uh, then the Lord said to the captives that he exiled to Babylon from Jerusalem. That's a weighted sentence by itself. He said to the, ba- the, those who, the captives he exiled to Babylon from Jerusalem, build homes and plan to stay. Plant gardens and eat the food they produce. Marry and have children. Then find spouses for those children so that they may have, you may have grandchildren. Multiply. Do not dwindle away. And work for the peace and prosperity of the city where I have exiled you. That's really interesting. So first of all, God has just said to his people that he's going to not remove them from this exile. So they're kind of refugees. They're away from home, which is Jerusalem. They're away from home in this place, Babylon. And they're being very mistreated. Um, It's a very hard life. And what does God say? He says, build homes, plan to stay, plant gardens, eat the food that they make, that your gardens are producing, marry and have children, have sex, have grandchildren. Your kids will marry and have sex and make grandchildren, multiply, be fruitful, explode in number, and work for the peace and prosperity of this city where you are. This is so weird and confusing if you are thinking about the good life as being the way America defines the good life. A few verses down is the verse Jeremiah 29, 11, that people say is their favorite verse. For I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. They are plans for good and not for disaster to give you a future and a hope. So it's a pretty good favorite verse, as long as you understand the context is you're going to be in exile. You're going to be refugees for 70 years. You have to live your life away from home. Many of you will die before you see home again, whatever we call it, what we used to call home. It's not going to happen for you. You're not going to see it again. That is not what we would call good news. Probably. And yet, he's saying, this is the good life I am giving to you. Super interesting. And what is it full of? It's full of gardening. It's full of sprouting and blossoming. And also accepting the reality of being away from home for the rest of your life, probably. These things that seem so simple and yet hold so much weight. They 
always make me say, hold on a minute. What? Go back to that. Hold, hold on a second. Go back. Can we talk about that? You know, when I read this and I hear you're going to be in exile for 70 years, I want to say, hold, hold, hold on. You're saying I'm going to be here for 70 years and you're saying plant gardens and get happy, like live my life. Life goes on. No, no, that can't be. What? Let me ask more questions here. So anyway, these things, which don't necessarily get laid out clearly um, by our society, they are held, these truths are held in these tiny statements. So just like Homer forgetting the one line, something, something, then you'll see, you'll avoid catastrophe, him forgetting this one thing, that's what we do. We forget the one part that's going to save us. Lazarus dies. Your friends are mourning. Jesus wept. That's the most important part. Maybe. Uh, John the Baptist dies. Jesus leaves in a boat. That's pretty important, apparently. You're going to be in exile. <laughs> Plant gardens. And live your life. And don't let it make you fade away. Really interesting stuff. These are the things I think that save us in the end. And these are the things that make up the actually good life. We'll come back to that in a second. But here's the other thing that I also notice about these um, stories that I read you, these sentences, is that if we are not paying attention there's a lot of super important people and events and places and moments that sneak right past us that hold a tremendous amount of life. Uh, a friend of mine uh, used to, a friend of mine and I used to have semi-regular coffee dates on Friday and um, both of our work schedules changed and we were just talking about the other day, like how this small treasure is lost. You know, it's just this thing that we took for granted and now it's not there. And it just kind of like, huh, I really liked that. You know, these things that just sneak past us so easily as, as given or taken for granted or seen as, you know, just whatever. They hold the keys to life sometimes. So we have to keep our eyes open is my point. In a previous episode, I totally outed my husband, Alan, um, that he's terrible for lo at looking for things. So, you know, for, I think I gave some example about looking in the refrigerator. I'll be like, could you grab that cheddar cheese? And in his mind, the cheddar cheese has like a black and clear label. And in actuality, it has a yellow label. And he can't find it because he's looking for the black label. That's what he has in his mind. So, you know... Oh, I thought it was the one with a black label. <laughs> so sometimes, actually I would say oftentimes maybe, we are looking for something specific when we're looking for the quote-unquote good life. When what we should actually be tuning into and looking for is something that looks very different. And let's not forget that appearances are very 
deceiving sometimes. We live in a society where we prosper. We try to prosper. And the stuff of real life, the stuff of the actual good life, involves suffering and a different kind of prospering, a different kind of substance. Uh, We have to be open to the possibility that the cheese is going to look very different if we're going to actually try to find it. (laughs) The cheese being the good life, the actually good life. Uh, I think it's important to look at stories of our lives, of other people's lives, and ask, you know, are these people living the good life? Am I telling myself because I see them suffering or struggling that they're not living a good life? Do I tell myself that? Do I struggle and say I'm not living a good life when the treasures of a good life, the components of a good life actually exist right under my nose, which is, you know, am I paying attention to my kids enjoying their lives? Am I enjoying them enjoying their lives? That is a component of a good life. Am I looking in people's eyes when I pass them? All these human beings that are passing me on the street, am I looking in their eyes? And are we making a connection? Even if just for a millisecond. That is the stuff of of the actual good life. You can be in your own personal hell and make a connection with a person and it taps into something really much deeper, just like Jesus moving through this crowd and he feels this healing power go out of him and he turns around and he says, who touched me? He's looking for someone who's looking for him. He's looking to connect and offer connection to a person who's looking for connection from him. These are the components of the actually good life. You can have the car, you can have the house, you can have the pool, the dog, the children, 2.5 children, the marriage, the blah, 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 whatever your quote unquote good life is. You can have the job, whatever it is. You think of whatever you call the good life typically. You can have all that and lose your soul. Lose the actual substance of life. You have to ask yourself, do I have what is actually good or do I have some counterfeit, poor version of life? And what can I do? What, can, what changes can I make to find the actual good life? And how can I weep over it? And how can I look for connection? Very, very interesting stuff. I have completely lost myself in the outline. I don't know where it is. I'm just looking at this. Uh, oh yes. Right, right, right. So I, we have all these things in our lives that we, I think, consider insurmountable barriers to what we typically define or our culture defines as the good life. Which, by the way, culture defines the world, the good life as the job, the relationship, 
the house, the dog, the pool, the blah, blah, blah. When that's the quote unquote good life, according to the world, I think it's like flir- this idea of flourishing in the world. Um, but it excludes losses and deaths and barriers and things like that typically. But here's the thing. Often what we call losses and deaths and barriers are the only things that can actually move us into next steps and deep life, deep substance, deep flourishing. Um, This book that I'm reading by David White, The Three Marriages, there's this section in chapter five where he's talking about this. He's talking about um, how Rilke was sort of stuck in his life. Uh, Rainier Maria Rilke, a poet of long ago. And um, he goes to the zoo. This is a great story. You should look it up. But um, actually, uh, I forget who told him to do this. I can't remember. Anyway, um, but you know, he goes to the zoo and he finds this panther and he watches it for a really long time. And he realizes this reminds him of him, this panther behind bars, this cage in this cage. So this is what David White says when he's talking about this, uh, talking about how we view barriers and losses and things being potentially incorrect. We are invited to go right into the exile and the sense of burial itself, as if our malady is not the visitation of loss itself, but the inability to feel it fully. Our ability to know what we want and need is first of all often marked by an early and profound experience of its very absence. We are asked to treat barriers and losses not as things to be overcome, but as representations of a bigger pattern whose shape we cannot yet see. Bars of a cage are not a problem. Bars are telling me that I have not yet seen, but could be just about to see, a dynamic I have never been able to name before. So he basically says here, the real exile, the real death, the real loss is our inability to feel the life that we are living, our inability to connect with the life and those we are living it with. And that these barriers that we see as enemies that are keeping us from the life that we actually want are actually this strange invitation to be awakened to a dynamic of actual loss in the fabric of our lives, which is things like not connecting with other people, not making eye contact with other people, not saying hello, um, not taking the moment in the busy day to connect with another person, connect with yourself, connect with God, to find the source of actually good life, to sit in silence, to enjoy it, to find the substance. In other words, sometimes it takes external losses to 
wake us up to the inner losses of our lives. And this is how we participate. It's through these barriers and through these losses that we actually find ways of being awakened to what we are not participating in. And then we find a different kind of good life, right? So here is my invitation to you this week. Consider that sometimes we are so busy looking for unconsciously, actually, most of the time, what we call the good life, this life that looks a certain way, but really the actually good life might be dressed up as something surprisingly different. Uh, It might be dressed up as weeping over losses. It might be dressed up as uh, getting in a boat and being quiet and doing quote unquote nothing, sitting on the, sitting on a dock and fishing with your dad for two hours, uh, watching your child play and just enjoying the simplicity of it. Also consider that your your outer circumstances, which might feel like a prison right now to you, might be trying to draw you to some awareness of something inside your fabric that is more like an actual prison. This thing that is holding you with wrong definitions, incorrect definitions of life. And maybe it's time to see what you've not let yourself see before. To not see the, par- the bars themselves, but to see the thing that they are keeping you from. And going after that. And then finally, consider that these pieces of life that we so easily skip over, like, I mean, you know, stop and smell the roses is a thing and we know it, but we don't know it. But consider that these pieces of life that we so easily skip over, that we something, something over are such profound invitations to participation in real flourishing life. Don't miss them. They want to be known and they want to be mined for gold. So my blessing to you is may you, my dear, dynamic, messy, suffering, beautiful friends, have the courage to release this old, stale definition of the good life. And may you realize that you have ever been stumbling upon the hidden things of life that hold substance, vibrance, and beauty and flourishing. And may you find the true good life. Thanks for joining me. Take great care. See you next week. Father of the mountains, shepherd of the sea, author of the questions that are hidden in me, a voice out on the water, a whisper in the
the trees Longing to believe Awake my soul Awake my soul Like a river you will flow Like a river you will flow Awake my soul Awake my soul Like a river you will flow Like a river you Like a river, like a river.